and the coin. And then, Lord willing, in a few weeks after Easter Sunday, we'll come back and consider the parable of the lost son. So Luke chapter 15 is our text today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe that your word is a firm foundation for our faith. And we believe that Your Word reveals to us what You are like, what we are like, and what we are like in relationship to You. And so we pray, God, that today we would have eyes to see You for who You are, and that we would have eyes to see, Father, ourselves as we ought to see ourselves. We pray for the grace, Father, to rejoice in what You rejoice in. We pray for the humility to be corrected where we fail to rejoice in what brings you joy. I pray, Lord, that you'd keep me from error. I pray for discernment for your church. These are evil days. And if your word is our only firm foundation, then we need discernment to hold fast to what is true. So I pray, Lord, that you'd keep me from error. pray that you'd give your church the grace that she needs to listen to your word with ears of faith. We ask all this, Father, confident that you hear us because Christ is risen from the dead. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, if you wanted to capture the truth of our passage this morning, you could really do no better than a line from John Newton's classic hymn, Amazing Grace. It's it's my favorite line from the hymn. It's there in the very first verse. I once was lost, but now am found. Lost and found. That's Luke chapter 15 in summary form. This is why Jesus has come to the earth. He came to seek and save the lost. And that's what we find Jesus doing in this chapter of Scripture. He's seeking the lost. He receives tax collectors and eats with sinners. And He's seeking them so that they may be found. Lost and found. That's Luke 15. Of course, that's not the only thing that happens in Luke 15. Not everyone appreciates Jesus' rescue mission. The Pharisees and the scribes, Luke tells us, they grumble against 
Jesus. I like to use my sanctified imagination when I read the Gospels, and it's not hard to hear and imagine the murmuring of the Pharisees and the scribes. Can you believe this guy? Doesn't he know who these people are? No self-respecting rabbi would eat with these kinds of people. What a disgrace. I mean, you can hear them grumbling and complaining against Jesus. And that's where the rest of the passage comes in. Jesus hears their grumbling too. And so Jesus tells these parables. We've already said that we're going to save the last parable, the longest one, for a few Sundays from now. But the first two parables are clear enough. A lost sheep and a lost coin. The parables are not hard to understand. They're simple enough for a child to follow along. And yet the simplicity reveals both the power and the purpose. The parables are masterfully crafted so that there is no place to hide. If you understand the parables, which how could you not? If you understand the parables, then you have no reason to grumble when Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. Here, in very simple images, is the heart of God. And therefore, here, in very simple images, is the attitude of those who know God. Or better yet, those who are known by God. And that's why Jesus tells these parables. He's illustrating God's heart in the Gospel. And at the same time, He's exposing the religious leaders' hard hearts by comparison. And that in turn gives us our bearings this morning for how we want to study this passage. Since Jesus uses these simple but powerful parables, I want us to see some simple but powerful reminders about the Gospel. There are four in particular that we ought to notice from these parables. There's four in this order. Jesus' heart, humanity's condition, God's pursuit, and heaven's joy. That's our aim today. Simple reminders of Jesus' powerful Gospel. So, let's get to it. We start in verses 1 and 2 with Jesus' heart. That's the first reminder. Jesus' heart. The passage begins with what appears to be an ordinary setting, but it's far from ordinary. Listen again to verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Just to remind you, tax collectors were despised in Jesus' day, particularly by the Jewish religious leaders. The tax collectors were viewed as sellouts, traitors who worked for the Romans. And sinners, well, you can guess the kind of people who got that label. It was the kind of people who had a past, you might say. People who were infamous for the way that they had lived. People who did not run in respectable social circles. Tax collectors and sinners. That's the setting that Luke describes in verse 1. Now, that fact alone is pretty remarkable, but that's not the most eye-catching thing about verse 1. Notice what the tax collectors and sinners are doing as they come to Jesus. They are coming to hear Him, Luke says. That's astounding, friends. Just look back one verse. The chapter break distorts this, but just look back one verse. Chapter 14, verse 35, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now one verse later, who is hearing? Not the religious leaders, but tax collectors 
and sinners. That's who's hearing the good news and responding to Jesus. So the kingdom of God is coming and it's bearing fruit, but it's not bearing fruit among the righteous people. It's bearing fruit among sinners and outcasts and people you would avoid. And of course, this offends the religious leaders. It offends them. Verse 2 makes this very clear. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Sounds like Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? They grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Sharing a meal in Jesus' day was a sign of acceptance, and the religious leaders can't fathom that Jesus would do such a thing. These are not people you receive. These are people you rebuke. But that's not Jesus' heart, brothers and sisters. He receives these people. That is, He welcomes them. He invites them to share in His fellowship. He encourages their presence. And He does so in a way that they perceive as both warm and receptive. Please don't miss that. I take it that the tax collectors and sinners did not make the first move toward Jesus. The cultural taboos of Jesus' day were well established. So in order for these kinds of people to draw near to a clearly powerful teacher like Jesus, He would have had to have moved first. They're not going to walk up to Him on their own. The cultural barriers are too high. He would have had to move first. At a minimum, Jesus went about His ministry in a way that clearly communicated, I want fellowship with you. I'm willing to receive you. Friends, that's the heart of Jesus Christ. He desires, he desires for sinners to come into His presence, to hear His Word, and to share His fellowship. Now, as I say that, someone may be thinking, yeah, but isn't that risky, Jeff? If we say that Jesus welcomes sinners, aren't we potentially minimizing sin? Couldn't this undermine the holiness of God? Those are good questions. You may be asking those questions yourself, or you may have heard someone ask those kinds of questions. And here's how I would answer those kinds of questions with two observations from this very passage. First of all, notice again that connection between verse 35 in chapter 14 and verse 1 in chapter 15. That connection is the key to the text. Jesus has just been preaching about the cost of discipleship. He's just called people to hear, and then who hears? Tax collectors and sinners. In other words, the tax collectors and sinners heard the clear teaching of Jesus. They heard Him talk about bearing the cross and renouncing all that you have. They heard Him preaching about the first becoming last and the last becoming first. They heard Him say that you must have no higher allegiance than Him. They heard Jesus preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And still, they come to hear. And then the second thing I would answer is by pointing out to you the concluding verse in each of the parables. Look how each parable ends. Verse 7 and verse 10 both mention the joy of repentance. Repentance. We're going to come back to this at the end of the sermon, but for now, I just want you to note that Jesus preached repentance. 
He welcomed sinners, but He welcomed them with the clear call of the Gospel. And so, from this, I take it that Jesus did two remarkable things that we should never drive a wedge between. One, Jesus preached the whole truth of God. And two, Jesus loved and received sinners. He did both of those things. In fact, friends, those two things are not at odds to preach the whole truth of God and to welcome sinners. Those things are not at odds and woe to us if we ever act as though they are. Preaching the truth does not mean stiff-arming people you consider unworthy. Preaching the truth does not mean making harsh pronouncements that fail to see others as actual human beings. At the same time, loving sinners does not mean minimizing the truth. Loving sinners does not mean obscuring the call of repentance and faith. Friends, this is part of the challenge of this passage. No one was more committed to the truth than Jesus. And no one displayed more warmth towards sinners than Jesus. They're not at odds. In fact, I'll just be straight with you. I am very, very concerned that the polarized nature of our culture is dramatically harming the witness of the church. Dramatically. You may know what I mean. Everything is polarized these days. It's either this or that, and there's nothing in the middle. It's either this or that. There's no option but the extremes on any particular question. And that attitude is sadly distorting the way that we think about Christian witness. So hear me on this. Aiming to be careful and winsome in how you proclaim the truth is not selling out the Gospel. I'm going to say that again. Aiming to be careful and winsome in how you proclaim the truth is not selling out the Gospel. It's wisdom. At the same time, being clear on the reality of sin is not being hateful or bigoted. It's courageous. That's Jesus' heart. He is clear on the truth and He welcomes sinners. To be about the Gospel, you must have both wisdom and courage. In fact, that's a good takeaway at this point. We need both wisdom and courage. I remember having a conversation with someone and I made this person ask me a question and he clearly wanted a this or that answer. And I said, well, I think the biblical approach to that is probably a bit more nuanced. And he said, nuance is a code word for being a liberal. In what world? Not my world. Right? Wisdom. At the same time, I've had conversations with people and they said, is it wrong to do X, Y, or Z according to the Bible? Yes. According to the Bible, that would be wrong. That's what God says. Courage. You see, wisdom and courage. If you want to have Jesus' heart, you need both of them. That's a good takeaway at this point. We need both wisdom and courage. Instead of going along with the polarized state of the world, let's be people who share the heart of the Lord. We need wisdom to be winsome with the truth, and we need courage to be clear with the truth. 
If you like mnemonic devices, it's a W and a W and a C and a C. Wisdom to be winsome and courage to be clear. That's what we need if we want to be like Christ. No one was more committed to the truth than Jesus. And no one displayed more warmth towards sinners than Jesus. Truth and love. Clarity and winsomeness. It's possible to display both. Indeed, it's vital. And we know that it is because we see it here in this text in Jesus' heart for sinners. That leads us into the second simple reminder, which is one of the truths we need to be winsomely clear about. From the two parables, we ought to note humanity's condition. Reminder number two, we ought to note humanity's condition. What is humanity like according to the Bible? Left to ourselves, what is our nature? That's one of the most important points that Jesus makes in these parables. And He makes it because the religious leaders seem to have forgotten it. (laughs) The religious leaders think, think that tax collectors and sinners are somehow worse off than they are. In other words, the religious leaders misunderstand human nature, including themselves, which is part of the reason why they're grumbling against Jesus, because they misunderstand human nature. And so, you can think of these parables as a short little lesson on the human condition. Jesus weaves into these parables some reminders about what our nature is like. Let's note just a couple of them. First and foundationally, humanity is by nature lost. Humanity is by nature lost. This point is so straightforward from the text that we might be tempted to overlook it. But it's the presenting problem of each parable. By nature, humanity is lost. In verse 4, the sheep is lost. He's he's separated from the shepherd's flock, which means that the sheep is likely headed for death. On their own, sheep cannot care for themselves, so a lost sheep would soon be a dead sheep. That's a picture of humanity's condition. By nature, we are lost. We are cut off from the One who gives and sustains life. We are cut off from God. The second parable makes the same point. Verse 8, the silver coin is lost. And obviously, there's no way for a coin to find itself. The situation can only be remedied by intervention from the outside. Someone's got to find the coin. And that's the second thing that we ought to note about humanity's condition. We stand in need of divine intervention. We stand in need of grace. Again, just let the simplicity of the parables teach you at this point. If the sheep is going to be found, then the shepherd has to find it. If the coin is going to be found, the woman has to find it. The sheep cannot and will not bring itself back to the flock. The sheep needs the shepherd. The same is true for the coin. The woman must seek out what is lost. She must take the initiative, light the lamp, sweep the house until she finds the coin. Apart from that determined effort, the coin will never be found. Friends, that's a picture of the human condition. Apart from God's intervention, sinners stay lost. They stay lost. Apart from grace interrupting the natural course of the human condition, sinners remain separated from God, bound in sin, and headed for eternal destruction. The simplicity of the parables illustrates a massively important truth in the doctrine of salvation. 
in order for lost sinners to be found, God has to seek them out. God has to take the initiative. We're going to come back to that in just a second, but for now, I want you to note about those I want you to note how those two points about humanity's condition go together. There's, there's, a, there's a connection here that you, you have to see. Humanity is by nature lost, and therefore God must take the initiative. Do you see how they go together? By nature, we're wayward. And therefore, by definition, we need God to take action. Those two points go, to, go together. If we understand the radical depth of our bondage to sin, then we can understand why grace must be sovereign and free and triumphant. In fact, many errors in the Christian life begin right, they begin right here when we overlook how radically depraved human beings are by nature. As counterintuitive as it might seem, a biblical understanding of salvation begins with a correct understanding of sin. What does it mean? What does it mean that God saves sinners by grace alone through faith alone? Well, step one to understand that is to understand sin and the human condition. So think, for example, of that wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith. You know that wonderful text, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not our own work, it is the gift of God. Perhaps the clearest passage in the Bible of the fact that salvation is a gift. But think about how that chapter begins before Paul gets to the soaring declaration of God's grace in salvation. He begins where? With humanity's radical depravity before God. Verse 1, but you were dead. In your trespasses and sins, Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. So do you see what the Apostle is doing there? It's the same thing that he's doing in all of his letters. He's explaining in his letter what Jesus is illustrating in the parable. In order for people to get found, in order for sinners to be saved, God has to take the initiative because by nature we're lost. We're dead. We're separated from God. By definition, we need divine intervention to be found. And that bridges us right into the third simple reminder from this passage. We've already touched on it, but we ought to dwell on it for a minute too. The third reminder is of God's pursuit. If humanity's condition is what it is, then the third thing that we ought to note is God's pursuit. If you think about the context of the passage, it helps put this reminder in perspective. So again, the religious leaders are upset that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. But all that proves is that the religious leaders don't understand the nature of God. By nature, God seeks the lost. By nature, God pursues sinners. So by eating with sinners and tax collectors, this is important, by eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus is not merely being friendly. And he's not trying to make a social statement. He's trying to make a theological statement. He's telling them something about God. That this is what God is like. God pursues those who cannot save themselves. And that pursuit shows up in the parables. In verse 4, the shepherd seeks out his lost 
sheep, even though that means leaving the 99 behind. The open country was a dangerous place, and yet the shepherd goes. He puts himself at risk in order to find what is lost. What's more, when the shepherd finds the sheep, verse 5, he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it to safety. It's a personal expression of costly love. The shepherd pursues his sheep. Friends, this is the character of God as displayed particularly in Jesus Christ. Like the shepherd in the parable, the Son of God laid aside His glory in order to enter the open country of our world where He would seek and save the lost. And His pursuit of sinners came at great cost to Himself. Christ took upon Himself the cost of remedying our lostness. Christ took on His shoulders our sin in order that He could bring us to God. That's what the religious leaders can't see in Luke chapter 15. They can't see God acting in Jesus. Think about the second parable. Verse 8, the woman searches diligently. She's turning the house upside down for just this one coin. It's dark, so she lights a lamp. Coins roll away, so she searches under the, under the, under the furniture and in every corner. Her search is diligent, in other words. It's thorough. It's determined. Again, this is the character of God. When we say that God pursues sinners, we mean that He is absolutely determined to find what He seeks. He's absolutely determined. God's pursuit of sinners in Jesus Christ is not rooted in wishful thinking. It's rooted in divine determination. God finds what He seeks. My brother is going down to the diamond mine this week with my nephew to search for diamonds. And they're hoping to find one. That's not how God pursues sinners. He doesn't hope to find them. He says, I will find them, and then He goes and gets them. It's a determined, grace-driven commitment to find those whom God has bound Himself to save. Indeed, this may be the simplest point of all. In a sermon full of simple points, this may be the simplest point. The shepherd finds the sheep. The woman finds her coin. And by grace alone, God finds and saves sinners. It's not wishful thinking. It's salvation determined and accomplished by God. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, then this is your testimony. You may have never thought about it in these terms, but this is your testimony. You were the lost sheep. And apart from God intervening, you would have died and gone to hell. You were the lost coin, unable to get yourself found. And yet God in His grace sought you out. God in His grace brought you in from the open country that would have taken your life. God in His grace went under the dark corner of the furniture and found you and brought you in to Himself. If you're a Christian, then this is your testimony. To read these parables is to read your spiritual lineage. This is how you came to life. At the same time, if you're a Christian, then this is also your calling. It's your testimony and it's your calling. Follow me here. Remember the context of the parables. When I was in seminary, the the brother who taught me how to interpret the Bible used to say at the beginning of every class period, context is king. Meaning, the context tells you what the passage is about. 
So remember the context. What is Jesus doing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders don't like that. But what is happening at that dinner table? God is pursuing the lost through Jesus' ministry to them. That's what's happening. God is acting in His grace to find the lost and He's acting in and through Jesus. God's grace is active in Jesus' fellowship with sinners. That's ultimately what we ought to see from this passage. God saves sinners, but He does so through His Word ministered by His people. God pursues the lost. How? Through your ministry of the Word in their lives. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate display of this truth. Jesus embodies and enacts the saving grace of God. But Christians too have a role to play in this reality. As servants of Christ who are equipped with God's Word, our ministry to the lost is the expression of God's pursuing love. God's grace works through means, friends. And the primary means of God's grace is the ministry of His Word-equipped, Gospel-loving people. Of all people, we should be the ones most committed to making the truth known. This is why the proclamation of the Gospel is central to the church's mission. Because Christ pursues, because God pursues sinners through His Word. This is why evangelism must have clear gospel content from the Bible, because God pursues sinners through His Word. This is why the church must simultaneously be clear that sin is deadly serious and that sinners are welcome in Christ. You have to do both. So pray for our church. I wish I could make it the application to every point in every sermon for the rest of my ministry among you. Pray for our church. There are many good things that we could do as a church. Many good things that we could do. But friends, there is only one thing that we must do in order to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's to make His Word plain. So before before we murmur and get frustrated that we're not able to do all the good things, friends, let's do the one thing and make His Word plain. Pray for our church Pray for our own hearts that we would both rejoice in God's pursuit of sinners and that we would be faithful to carry out our role in that pursuit. God pursues the lost and He pursues them through His Word-equipped, Gospel-loving people. So pray for our church. One more reminder from the parables. And this is where we're going to finish. From verses 7 and 10, we ought to note heaven's joy. God's pursuit is successful, and therefore, we ought to note heaven's joy. Each parable ends in the same way. With heaven rejoicing when the lost are found. Look again at verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. 
Now, Jesus is not saying there are some people who don't need to repent. Rather, Jesus is using the Pharisees' logic against them. Self-righteous people like the Pharisees and the scribes, people who rest on their own moral standing, those people miss out on the joy of heaven. Why? Because they think they don't have anything to repent of. So they miss out on the joy of heaven. The heavenly throne room breaks out in praise when even one sinner is found by God's grace. This is why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Because His aim is to do the will of His Father. Jesus' aim is to accomplish that which brings joy to His Father's heart. So He eats with sinners. And this is so significant that Jesus repeats it in verse 10. Listen again. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, heaven rejoices in the salvation of the lost. To shun the lost, then, is to demonstrate that you don't know the character of God. To shun the lost is to demonstrate that you don't know the character of God. In fact, Jesus makes precisely this point in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He's telling the parable here about the sheep. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. On a basic level, Jesus is saying that heaven's joy is meant to be shared. When God rejoices in the salvation of the lost, those who know God rejoice as well. What delights God ought to delight God's people. But think about the implication that Jesus is making here. It's going to come out clearer in the parable of the prodigal son, but it's it's present in this parable. This is really the heart of His correction. If you don't rejoice in the salvation of the lost, what does that say about you? It says that you don't understand the Father. Indeed, you might not even know Him. You may be lost while thinking you are found. Because those who know God share in the Father's joy. Heaven's joy reveals the Father's character, and to share in that joy is part and parcel of knowing God. We'll have more to say about that when we get to the prodigal son. But as we close this morning, there's just one more application that I want us to think about. As we've already seen in the passage, part of the purpose of these parables is to call Christians to carry on in Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost. That's part of the purpose of these parables. By shunning the lost, the religious leaders reveal that they don't know God. True disciples join Jesus at the dinner table with sinners. That's what he's trying to say. If you know my Father, you would be doing what I do. So the parables are both simultaneously rebuking the self-righteous and instructing disciples. Carry on with what Jesus is doing. So that sets up this last application that I want to try to make to you. It's a question, because I like questions. What is it? What is it that sustains disciples as they seek to carry on in Christ's mission of seeking and saving the lost? What is it that keeps them going? The world is a dark place, if you haven't noticed. And the ministry of the Gospel is often marked by hardship and hard soil. So what keeps the disciple going? Or, to ask it a different way, what's the fuel of evangelism? 
What's the fuel of evangelism and discipleship? The answer, friends, is this final reminder. The answer is heaven's joy. The fuel of evangelism is not necessarily a heart for people, though that is certainly important. The fuel of evangelism is the delight of God the Father in saving the lost. In other words, the joy of the Lord is our strength in evangelism. Because God rejoices, we keep serving. We seek the lost because heaven rejoices when that one wayward sheep is found. We search for the lost because the Father delights to share the joy of His salvation with His people. Friends, that's the only sustaining fuel for evangelism. If we root our ministry in the number of converts we might see, then we'll either get discouraged or we'll end up compromising the message. The world is dark, people are lost, and the soil of the human heart is incredibly hard. So if we, if we try to sustain our evangelism with the number of people that we see converted, it's discouragement or compromise. Pick which one you want to go. But if we root our evangelism in the joy of God, in the fact that God delights to save sinners, if that's the fuel of our evangelism, then we can simply entrust ourselves to faithfulness. Believing that God will do what He delights to do. Why do I share the Gospel? Because God loves to save the lost. That's why we share. The fuel of evangelism is the joy of God. We can give ourselves to the work beginning in our own homes. Let me say that again. Beginning in our own homes and then expanding out through our neighborhoods and our workplaces. We can give ourselves to that work because God loves to save sinners. God's heart is to seek the lost, even the one solitary sheep. And so therefore, we engage in that work ourselves. Heaven's joy is the fuel for an evangelistic heart and church. Lost and found. <laughs> That's Luke chapter 15. I love this chapter. Lost and found. If you're a Christian today, this is your testimony. Praise God. And if you're a Christian, this is also your calling. It's both your testimony and your calling to, to take up the Gospel message confident in the grace of God and to proclaim Christ for the salvation of the lost. Both your testimony and your calling. So may God be pleased to add to our fellowship, many people who are able to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that You save lost sinners like me. Thank You, Father, that You do not leave the one sheep who is lost. Thank You, Father, that You do not forget about the one coin that has rolled away into the dark. You pursue the wayward and we thank You, Father, that Your grace is so sovereign and free and mighty that it can overcome our own natural condition of being dead in our sins. Lord, infuse in us a renewed confidence to be about the work You've given us to do. And Father, we pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength in these days. That we would be compelled by the Father's delight to save the lost. Give us grace, God. Help us to rejoice as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Let's stand and joyfully.